Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. With you today, this episode is brought to you by Veeam, veeam.com. So go to V-E-E-A-M.com, and that is where you're going to go for your data protection and hyper-availability needs. Uh, the family at Veeam are, are good time and longtime supporters of the Disco Posse website and uh, have carried over in support for the podcast. So we're very excited. There's a ton of great places you can learn about technology, learn about data protection, especially in the time that we're in. With that, today's episode features an incredible conversation with somebody who is someone you're going to love uh, just every every part of this discussion is both profound learning capabilities that you're going to walk away with and heartfelt stories. Liza Huber is the founder of Sage Spoonfuls. This is a really fantastic brand that just Sage Spoonfuls is enough to talk about, but we get into how she founded it, how she bootstrapped it, how she survived a lot of change, dealing with social media, dealing with marketing, dealing with operating a company at scale, and much more, a story that will be from the heart that you have to listen to. With that, enjoy. Hi everyone, it's Liza Huber, the CEO and founder of Sage Spoonfuls, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. I'm gonna first of all, I'm gonna start because I when I go to a company's website and it immediately makes sense to me what's cool about what they do, it's a rare treat. Surprisingly, like I'm I work in a marketing team. Uh, and so I am excited because we've got uh, Liza Huber from uh, Sage Spoonfuls. Uh, you are so many things, but today we're going we're gonna to lead out. We want to talk about Sage Spoonfuls. Uh, and the main reason I love it, I love this tagline, parenting is hard, mealtime doesn't have to be. That's, I, I want to start with kind of the how this whole thing got started. Uh, and we're going to cover a lot, including sort of the challenges of being a founder, running a business. As people may be listening to this, uh, how do you deal with supply chain challenges as we head into, you know, closures and social distancing? Oh boy, Liza, we've got a lot to cover. But uh, so your background, how did you get into the business of being Sage Spoonfuls? <laughs> So I started out in a former life as a soap star. I worked on NBC. Uh, I was on Passions for 10 years and I loved it. We had fun. Um, but after my first child was born, uh, Royce, who's now 13, uh, of course, you become a, you know, a parent and you know, I became a mom and I just had all these different ideas. And as he started on solid foods, I knew that I wanted to make food for him. But as a busy working parent, there was nothing out there on the market that made it easy for parents. And I thought, to, I, I remember thinking in the back of my mind, this is so ridiculous. This is such like a basic need. I mean, 
there's got to be a, I can't believe there's nothing out there that doesn't make it easy. So I used to, you know, kind of piece a system together. And I mean, it's little snap cubes that used to open up and leak in the freezer. And I, I had the bee in my bonnet, but I was working for NBC. I had a whole separate career, uh, no time or really desire or need to start another company. But then when the show went down and I was pregnant with our second son, Brendan, I mean, again, we, I thought I was going to keep going into acting. Um, and we moved back to New York to be closer to family. And then Brendan wound up being born nine weeks premature. And so that was a game changer. And it was a big deal. He was fighting for his life for six weeks in intensive care. And we almost lost him twice. So that was just like record scratch, game changer. Um, and so once Brendan came home and was stable, he was about six months old, uh, I sat Alex, my husband down and another relative down and kind of told them what I had been thinking about. I said, you know, I don't want to leave this child with a nanny. Like my, my, my acting days in the traditional sense are, are over, but you, you know, unbeknownst to you guys, I've been doing hundreds and hundreds of hours of research. There's a huge hole in the market. Here are my thoughts. They loved it. Um, each one of them threw me some seed money. And what I thought uh, initially it was going to be a recipe book that really demystified making your own baby food uh, and kind of took the intimidation factor out of it and storage jars because my main issue was these stupid snap cubes that used to make a mess. <laughs> Everybody's like cursing and like they can picture those little things in their hand as they and then picture the mess that it left behind. <laughs> oh, huge mess. So it was just going to be initially the recipe book and the storage jars. But I mean, I it just started evolving i said well wait then we need a blender and then we need this and we need this and this and this and i mean five it was a two-year concept to creation and five months after launch we were in bye bye baby i mean and, and selling on target.com i mean it just hit like wildfire i mean so what i saw as because i'm my own customer so what i saw as a need for busy working parents or busy parents in general um, it really was a huge need out there. Um, so it's amazing. Here we are seven years later, uh, and we were, Sage Spoonfuls was one of the pioneer brands in homemade baby food items, and we are growing faster than ever, even in a um, far more um, competitive landscape now, but we're just exploding, and the need is really there, and now we're not just baby food. We're toddler meals and big kid meals, too, and I've never been happier. It's really incredible how life takes you on a journey. When this is the the interesting thing, uh, you were, you, like you said, are your own customer, and your challenges fed the story of what you needed to build on the on the company, and it's interesting that I think there's a wave of sort of very strong awareness of the health factors and just like lifestyle begins at birth. And it used to be, you know, back when, when you and I were born and, and folks of our generation, we like I probably came home on my mother's lap, you know, <laughs> right. maybe my one foot behind the seat belt. And, you know, I used to ride to the grocery store on a, on a box of beer, you know, from, you know, and like, that was, that was, we grew up in this time where you just like, it's a miracle we even survived. But yet I used did. to sit, <laughs> I used to sit on my dad's lap while he was driving the car. I mean, could you imagine these days like bananas? <laughs> so we have all of this 
incredibly innovative stuff we've done with life safety. And as a kid that drank from the garden hose as, you know, and rode with no bike helmet and did all these crazy things, we got very good about that stuff. We learned, hey, there's things we can do better. But as rapidly as life became safer, our food became terrifying. And people don't know it. But it started to, I think, so we've got this interesting generation that sort of grew up on microwave food and grew up with just a very different way of first two-parent families changing the way that we do things. So, you know, how have you seen the effect in how well-received what Sage does and, and just like the idea of going back to, not basics, but going back to where it should have come from in the beginning? It really is going back to basics, if you think about it. I mean, just preparing preparing food. I mean, there is nothing more basic, right? Um, it was an interesting journey because we started out you know, living in Los Angeles when I had the idea, but this was 13 years ago and there were still BPA and phthalates in the plastic. Um, so, I mean, the, the, really we were there at the start of the movement. Uh, right as the show was going down and we were gonna move back to New York, the organic movement was really starting. But then we moved to New York and it really took three years for it to really hit pretty hard. So the organic movement and the BPA and phthalate and lead-free and PVC-free products to really hit the baby market. So timing-wise for me, it was really great because we were very much ahead of the, ahead of the curve. Uh, we saw the movement happening when we were in LA and then we got to New York and the two year concept of creation. So by the time we launched, I mean, really the wave of understanding about the importance of pesticide free food, you know, going organic as much as possible, you know, the fact that store-bought baby food, whether it's organic or conventional is processed, uh, right. all of this was new. So we really hit right at the crest of this wave of understanding. It was, it was um, a wonderful mix of, timing and filling a very important need and it's i like the honesty of the acceptance of timing luck but it's not completely luck right there's market timing is the most profound thing that can affect the outcome and the success of any business but it also has to be a business built on strength to begin with. Yeah, you know, you're 100% right. And I think that luck is a mixture of a great idea and cosmic forces. <laughs> you know, it's like you can't just have a great idea with bad timing and you can't just have luck because if you're not, you don't have anything to present in a lucky situation. I mean, when we were in LA, I saw this need. I saw this happening and I did something about it you know so by the time I got to New York we were already you know in the two-year concept of creation by the time the wave hit I'm so glad I followed my instincts saw this coming so I was able to really take advantage of the timing I think any successful business really is a mixture of uh timing you know luck and timing and being ahead of the curve and on trend in the perseverance uh, it's just like anything that I always joked about, you know, as being, I was a musician for, for years and we always talked about, you know, I can't wait 10, 10 more years of this hard work and we can become an overnight success. 
and and that becomes this thing that that's the unseen hours that go into you know like you even talked about idea to to con like concepts to creation like that that's an incredible especially you're manufacturing something that's fundamentally different like just whipping up a wordpress site and coming up with an idea and then getting a, a mailing list up like a lot of people do that now and then those things you know, may or may not succeed for a variety of reasons we're in a weird world where a business can be built on simply putting a website up to show people how to buy things from Amazon and right. you take a little taste off the top, you know, like the affiliate marketing is a lot of, a lot of business today is sort of like sitting on top of something that you just can do whatever people are doing and you can still succeed at it versus like you, you went at, you're literally creating physical goods. Yeah. From the ground up, just something, just literally planting the seeds and watching it grow. And um, people don't realize going in how hard it is. And maybe that's, maybe that's good. <laughs> you know, you, you just, if you're really dedicated and really believe in your idea and the mission statement for your brand, for your company, for yourself, um, and you just stick with it, you will make it happen in any environment. I mean, we're now in our eighth year and we've seen so many changes, not only changes in marketing, but changes in manufacturing. You know, now we got to deal with all these Trump import taxes, which are a killer changes to the retail landscape. Who would have ever, ever thought that Toys R Us would, would a store like that would go down? I mean, just that the changing landscape of retail um, is, is, really important and you have to kind of go with it now this is the the funny thing too <clears throat> success is not permanent correct it, it's market timing isn't a one-time thing it's you got to be ready all the time and we are as we we sit here today and we talk if people are depending on when they listen we're we're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic like literally they've acknowledged that this, the coronavirus is, is something that's fundamentally changed the way that we behave as a society. And that's changing the way that we will do business. No one, Absolutely. no one is ready for what's coming. We will be, but no one, no one can predict how it's going to go from moment to moment, from hour to hour, from day to day right now, we will all adapt. And I think what will be, you know, perseverance and willingness to do hard things will be the definer for success for the next thing. And, you know, I think you're actually in one of the most survivable industries because I think it's going to be incredibly important. People are going to realize like, what's the number one thing that we needed? Food that we can trust, that we can preserve. People are having babies right now and they don't know that they can go to the store or not. Like how, how do we, that's, this opens people's eyes up to the fact that we depend on immediate availability of things and we need to go back to basics. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think that this whole um, global crisis we're in is bringing us all back to basics in every way, shape and form. And we're all, it's bringing us back to the dinner table as a family and the importance of that. It's bringing out our creativity um, as parents, as business people and our children are having to figure out ways to 
be creative and to learn our teachers. I mean, there is not one industry uh, left untouched during this right now. And I do believe that we are all going to come out better and stronger. And this is um, a test, you know, a global test of resilience. And what I hope is that people take the lessons and turn them into behaviors. And I think that's the hardest thing that we don't do well as a society is turn lessons into outcomes. And, and that's tough. Agreed that it's not just, it's okay, this is going to be a difficult few weeks or few months, and then we're going to dive right back into everything we did the same way. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just, I think it's a lesson, a global lesson in resilience for, for, for all of us personally and professionally and for our kids. And, uh, you know, I do feel grateful that the product that we make is a very important one and is for children, but we are being affected just like everyone else. Like currently while our warehouse is able to remain open, our assembly house is closed. So as I sit here talking to you now, I have 3000 units of our number one seller in a cl that I can't get to, <laughs> yeah. you know, we can't, we can't ship it out. Um, Amazon, our largest account is only ordering essential goods. You know, so this past Monday, we get our Amazon orders every Monday. It was a $0 order. That's a really big blow for wow. us financially. Um, so while our warehouse is able to remain open, we have 3000 units of our top seller that we can't even, that maybe Target is still ordering and uh, uh, you know, Bye Bye Baby and other stores are still ordering and consumers are still ordering, but we can't access them because that's closed down. Um, there's just, and then there's, there's consumer buying habits are changing. And, um, you know, we get our labels from, from a, a, a small company, but I have to put that order on hold because now this is on hold and this is slowed down. And it's just such a, a domino effect down the line. And we're all trying to do right by one another, but we also all have to really look where every dollar is going right now. Um, it's hard for sure. The, uh, you need to put a, a roll of toilet paper in every box. That, yeah, <laughs> it'll sell like wildfire. I, I, yeah. I, I remember at one point there was actually this weird thing. So there's price gouging laws. In fact, they're actually initiating, like they've, they've said that the attorney generals can now prosecute like immediately for price gouging. And they did, this had happened one time. I forget when it was. It might have been like the 2003, the big Eastern Seaboard power outage. And someone said there's like, you know, generators and batteries we're suddenly going up in price. And so someone said, well, you can't do that. That's illegal. So they said, no, no, no. My batteries are the same price, but I'm selling it with a big pen. That's a thousand dollars. Like, <laughs> so they would just like package oh. together to like, just, I mean, it was effectively a parody on, on how difficult it is to regulate behavior when crisis strikes. And like, cause this is it. Like you, like you said, you go into a very different mode of operations when you think about not just how do I run my business, but how do I depend on my suppliers? Because they depend on me. And then your customers depend on you. And those customers have children who depend on them as parents. There's this incredible dependency effect. And when we suddenly can't get one of those things, again, like I said, I hope that we just, we go into this and said, 
what happens if I, this happens again? Not like, whoo, can't wait. We made it. You know, in seven weeks, we'll be like, yep, heading to Chili's. <laughs> Go have some snappy appies and, and celebrate with a margarita, a family style, like with four straws. Like, we're going to go back to terrible behaviors, I'm sure. Uh, but hopefully, be kind of a bit more prepared about what could happen. Absolutely. Uh, not only as a business, but as a family as well. I mean, it the, for us personally um, at Sage Spoonfuls, this has been a really unbelievable high and low. Like we have seen growth like that we haven't, like we were looking at another 100% growth like we're unbelievable i mean our jars are the number two top seller you know on amazon i mean this is huge like all of our stuff is in the top 100 you know the top 10 and it's we're just crushing it we went from crushing it i mean these orders every monday were huge like and we're expanding into here and there and there and there and there and then boom the coronavirus hits and everything stops um so all the projections need to change uh the way we're running the company needs to change and there is a new normal and we all will get back to the old normal but hopefully a more informed normal and uh having better crisis preparedness both personally and professionally is what i hope that we can all come out from this and but i tell you I will be at Chili's with a margarita for four, for sure, because we all are going to need to go out and be out and supporting the businesses and restaurants and having some adult beverages outside of our home. <laughs> for sure. Very true. Now, the thing that what builds a per person who can see through the challenge is adversity right generally people aren't like you're not six years old going i'm ready for the world to tip over come at me you know hold my hold my bottle you know <laughs> hold my hold my baby beer we we are not we we discover it through discovering ourselves in difficult times and i think what's what's good about all of us is hopefully we kind of take those lessons and you know if you don't mind i'd like to actually Go back, you talked at the start about your son, Brandon, and the challenges you faced. I would imagine that that must really have changed the way that you think about how important each day is when you were in that hospital. Yeah, and beyond, I, right? absolutely. I mean, it was very touch and go for many weeks. And really what was the one of the most important pivotal moments in my life there was a day um it was exactly i remember he was born on a saturday and it was the following saturday and he had been doing quite well under the circumstances and he had been initially on a respirator but then off and um on a different kind of oxygen you know ten thousand tubes and and i used to go because we had royce who was 18 months old at the time so i used to go at 10 a.m when royce was napping and then i would go at like 10 p.m from 10 p.m to 2 a.m in the nicu so royce really never knew i was gone but i remember one day and it was that saturday and it was a saturday so alex was in his home office and i said something is just i i feel this magnet to go to the hospital right now i, I i'm just going and I, it was a totally off time and i do believe that a women's and a mother's instinct in particular is a superpower and i'm like just go so i drove to the hospital no one had called me to say anything was wrong there was no 
anything other than my gut said, get your behind to the hospital. So I got there and then I parked my car and something told me, run, run, and I'm running. Okay. So I just was running like running out of instinct to the NICU and I pushed the door and they, the NICU doors flew open and Alice, our uh, Brendan's chief nurse was like, I was just about to call you. She looked white as a ghost and Brendan was out of his ventilator and he was gray on the table and it was a Saturday and his chief neonatologist was not there and everyone was deciding what to do. Like, he had to be manually stimulated. So he was laying there gray. You would say, Brendan, Brendan, Brendan. And he would, he would take a breath and he would turn pink and then he would crash and turn gray. Brendan, Brendan turned pink and turned gray. This went on for hours because the doctors didn't want to put him back on the ventilator or the respirator because every solution can cause another problem. But I mean, I think this went on for six hours. Gray and pink and gray and pink and gray. And was, I mean, finally, the neonatologist said, you know, we got to put him back on the ventilator. And so I don't know, you know, when the cerebral palsy happened. We had a very traumatic birth. He Did he lose oxygen there? Did he lose oxygen that day? I don't know, but I'll never forget. Like we didn't really know. And they were putting him under all these tests and all these tests and, and I was, I remember being in the parent waiting room, like sobbing with my girlfriend on the phone because I needed someone to take Royce because I knew that I was going to be um, in the hospital for days. And as I was on the phone with my girlfriend, Sandy, who was going to take Royce for me for a few days, the nurse popped her head in and she said, you know, we're going to take Brandon for a spinal tap. And I said, thought to myself, a spinal tap on this baby who's preemie, like on death's door, like what's, what's wrong with him is that he still needs to be in my body. That's what's wrong with him. And my, I remember my friend saying, is he going to be okay? And I remember just like breaking down and saying, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to be okay. And I allow, you know, I allowed them to give him this spinal tap. I guess they were checking for meningitis. I don't know. But after that, then they wanted to give him a CAT scan. And here I am like... I just said enough is enough. I know. And I stood in front of his isolate for 48 hours. And I said, don't take this kid. I said, you let him sleep for two days. And then I will let you take him out of his isolate. I said, this is, I said, I know you want to figure out what's wrong. I'm telling you right now, what's wrong is that he didn't bake long enough in my body. That's what's wrong. And I sat there for two days. I let nobody come near him. And, um, and I said, you want to give him a CAT scan after that? You can give him a CAT scan after that. And um, he wound up doing better, you know, he wound up doing better. And um, after six weeks, he was released. And, you know, at one point he lost oxygen, you know, at some point along the way. And, and it wasn't until he was two years old that he was diagnosed. He wasn't meeting milestones but we didn't know what it was. Like at first, the morphology of his red blood cells was off. They thought he had a rare red, red blood cell disease. Then the morphology fixed itself. And then they thought that um, he was autistic and that wound up not being it. Then they thought he didn't have a gallbladder. I was like, oh my God. You know, but it's just, um, and then when he was about two years old, he was finally diagnosed with CP. And it's just, uh, that stuff is life-changing. And really ever since we went through that, uh, and you know, there's been multiple surgeries for Brendan and it's, it's anyone who has a child with special needs, just like your whole mindset becomes different. I mean, if we could survive that moment, I can survive any moment. So that's where I am. I don't right now with the Corona and business wise. I mean, it's so horrendous what that so many people are dying and seeing so many families hurting, but from a business perspective, 
I am not stressed out because there's, I just believe so much in resilience in the human spirit. And I know we're all going to come out of it. I do. I think it's, it's needed, you know, for, for a certain level of adversity for people to understand and appreciate that the things that are bothering us greatly, like I said, it's not that it doesn't, like tough, difficult things aren't happening, are happening for sure right now. But, you know, it's, the, it's sort of this funny question that I ask people too. And I think I, I, I can't remember even where I originated this from. It's probably stolen from like a Tim Ferriss thing or something. Like, that. So <laughs> like what's, what's, the, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you that you're the most thankful for? And I'm imagining, you know, not that you wouldn't do anything in your soul to change the entire path that you and, and Brandon and, and Alex went through, but you know that it made you and it made him and your whole family amazing because of what you experienced. It's true. I mean, with the exception, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, you, you have so many trials and tribulations that, that are difficult. I mean, really, when I, when I look back historically on the very most difficult times in my life, they, ha they have brought me the very best things in my life. And um, I think, you know, obviously there's things like losing a child. There's nothing good that comes out of losing a child. But, you know, there are so many hardships that we do come out stronger and better, smarter and more resilient for. So, yeah. These are the lessons that I think a lot of people are going to experience <clears throat> and that they will find resilience. We will all be better because of a lot of what's going on. So hours in a day, this is one thing God, I, <laughs> I hate to, <clears throat> I hate to come away from that and, and go into, you know, how you become resilient. Just outside of this, I wouldn't mind talking about passions. Sure. Now I know Everybody says, oh, yeah, there's a tough job, acting. Yeah, you just sit there and, you know, pretend into a camera for a living. I know the difference between serial acting and, like, say, movie or, or what, like, TV, challenging enough. Soap, serial, is disturbing the amount of work <laughs> that goes on in order to make those things occur. Because this is not like four months in advance. Like they are pretty close to real time in the way that they produce, record, and then release. Like this is, what's that, what was that life like when you were going through that? And what was your day like? I mean, look, it is certainly not like a surgeon going into a 12-hour surgery and saving someone's life, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it was... It was, it, it had its own kind of, its own challenges, but they were fun, non-life altering challenges. I mean, it was, we were doing a brand new play every day and sometimes two, and sometimes, uh, you know, there's very little rehearsal and you're learning, you know, you're, you don't get the scripts very far in advance. And, you know, I often would have like a four page monologue and stuff like that. And thankfully for me, I have a photo photographic memory and I just, I, I often wouldn't even look at the scripts until the morning. And my makeup artist would be like, we'd be there at like 6.45 in the morning. She's <laughs> like, did, did you look at the script? Because you have a three-page monologue and you're going on tape in an hour. I'm like, no problem. Like, 
<laughs> so it became like a personal challenge. Those days were fun. Look, I mean, yeah, you're putting on a brand new play every day with very little rehearsal and changes with no warning, but that's a fun job. I mean, because when we were doing Passions, this was before reality TV. I mean, so it was, we were making a lot of money. We were all really young. It's like we all had our dressing rooms. We used to have lunch together. We we taped at CBS, uh, CBS Radford lot where Will and Grace taped and that 70s show. And we would all be in the commissary together. And those, I mean, those were some of the most fun years of our life. I don't have a complaint in the world about that. What's, what is interesting though, is that e even as non- life-threatening and, and sort of maybe important. I don't want to say it's not important, but like relative to, like you said, a lot of other things that go on, you know, as my, a few people, I forget who described it. I said, I, I pretend for a living, right? It's, but there is still a, a real ethic that you, you get as a result of the day. Because I think you don't just do a lot, but you probably learn to appreciate that that four-page monologue that you're, going to be able to do there's a team of writers that are working day in day out nonstop to make that thing how did that inform your kind of view of life when you saw all of the things that made that machine work i mean to put on a soap opera is about 200 people and and um unfortunately that's one of the reasons also why you know, so many soaps, the majority of soaps um, have really gone down once reality TV kicked in because reality TV takes far, far less um, needs in production than a daytime drama does. Uh, I have always had a very, very good work ethic. I mean, always, since I was a little girl. Um, but you start to look at the chain of how things go. Okay, there's a team of writers who've put their heart and soul into this. And if I don't do it right, it's disrespectful to them. You know, it's also, you know, you want to tell the story the right way. And then if I get my lines wrong, then I'm giving the wrong cue to my co star and then you know the lighting is looking for a certain cue the sound the boom guy is looking for a certain cue the cameramen are looking for a certain cue so if you mess up it throws the whole the whole team off uh so for me it was you know i got the job i was 21 22 years old it was really my it was my first professional um job and really understanding the importance of teamwork uh on all fronts i mean and so now i have a team it's just a different team it's another whole chain of the way things work, you know, from production to transport, to the retailers, to my warehouse staff, to marketing, to my COO, to myself. Um, us all being respectful and understanding of what all of us do and how one kink in the chain can throw off the whole production. It sounds like understanding the outcome helps to inform the way you see the way it should operate 100 percent. how did the your, your you got a you were your first job was telling stories for a living yeah how did that also inform and, and create the vision and like the way that you present sage spoonfuls because it's not just products but it's production in in every sense that it's marketing it's knowing how to promote, knowing how to tell the story in a meaningful way that is 
has the empathy for the customer and, and then listening to that customer community and, and feeding it back through, uh, you know, how did you, as you developed this, you know, what, what did that process look like as you built the story of Sage, as you built the, the product as well? It, it's really what you said, the story of Sage, it really is a production just of a different type. And, you know, directing was always something I was interested in. So being the CEO and founder, it's, it's, it's just a natural crossover. And I definitely, one of my strengths is to see the big picture and to have a lot of creativity in my vision. Um, and the ability to, to bring everyone together to run this production smoothly so that we can continue to produce the vision, the product. Uh, being on TV for 10 years also um, really allowed me to hone my skills of public speaking and being on camera. You know, I love being on camera and I love talking to people. And that's very important for the story of the brand and for Sage Spoonfuls as the face of the brand. I'm always doing speaking engagements and talking to parents um, and now getting to also talk about business on podcasts. And so having that, that, um, being comfortable with that and having that experience uh, has been very helpful. The interesting thing uh, is a lot of folks, as they get started, you have different types of founders and it's obviously there's the, the pure idea founder, you know, or, or creator. Uh, there's the, the technical founder, someone that's like nerding out on the engineering side <laughs> of it, whether it's, you know, software or, or a physical product. Uh, and it, it's it's interesting because your product and your whole ecosystem that you're building is very you you touch a lot more of it than most people would because you're literally the you're you're a customer of your own products you you use the stuff as a as a mother you know as a parent it's a you get that but you're also creating it marketing it doing whatever it's it's when you talk to other founders of companies. Do you ever find that when you talk to them, you're like, wow, I do a lot more than many other people do? Because it is actually rare to be as involved and, and dominant in the outcome and affecting the company in the way that you are, right? Because you did, you created everything and now you're using a team to carry it forward. But a lot of other people, they literally just like, right, got an idea, fire it on a paper, submit the patent, and then hire a team to do it? Well, I think it depends on a number of factors. I think it depends on what you want to do with the business. A lot of people just have a great idea and they want to sell the idea or the patent or the technology. I think it depends on what kind of leader you are. I think it depends on what your own goals are. Um, also depends on the size of your business. I mean, you know, we're a small business and as gosh, the majority of businesses in the country are small businesses. And, you know, the founders that I talk to, and really in my world, it's, it's mostly female founders. And most of them are moms. And most of them are wearing a lot of different hats. I think that in this day and age, the story of the brand, because look, nobody's reinventing the wheel at this point. So people want to know who they're buying from, especially as a parent buying something for a child. They don't want to buy something from this nameless, faceless um, corporation. They want to know who is responsible for this product that I'm going to buy to use with my child. Um, so when someone buys Sage Spoonfuls, they know that a mom of four 
is is behind it and is and is putting her name on it and her stamp of approval and i am them you know i am a it's it's i always say about sage spoonfuls it's created by busy parents for busy parents so it's definitely difficult in the beginning, you know, as an entrepreneur and also as a self-funded entrepreneur, you're wearing 500 hats, but that's also not sustainable and you can't, uh, you're not setting yourself up for success if you're only doing that. And eventually I had to build out my team, but I definitely still have the number one hand on the product development, the marketing, the creativity, the voice of the brand. Eight years in now, I see how important it is to have that voice of the brand and you need to be able to reinvent the brand a little bit and keep it fresh every couple of years. You don't want to be a flash in the pan in order to have longevity. You need to have a real true voice of the brand. People need to know who they're buying from and, and they have to understand your story and what you're all about. Um, we saw this like we, we had a soft launch end of 2013. Really 2012 was the big, big launch of the brand. Huge years, 100% growth, 100% growth, 100% growth. Then 2015, 2016 was epic, over 100% growth. But then I rested on my laurels a little bit because we're growing, 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 growing. 2017 was a rough, rough year for us. It was the first year we saw um, a, a little bit less, you know, not a growth year. And so, um, my team and I were just like, okay. And we really just redefined the brand. And then we saw another spike, you know, again, and now again, here we are in 2020 and I'm redefining the brand again uh, from what I see. Um, so I, I love having my hands so much in it. And honestly, um, one of the reasons that I'm able to do that is because I'm hundred percent owner. A lot of people have, you know, right. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, we've had so many spectacular VCs come to us over the years and we've had dozens of conversations and it never felt right for me. Um, and I'm not <laughs> um, built to work in that kind of environment. I would have a very difficult time not being able to follow my dream and the vision for the company exactly as is. Not everyone can do that. So I'm grateful that I've been able to be resourceful and I, that we have the kind of company that we can remain self-funded. And I only answer to me and my team. I'm yeah, lucky. It, it is. A, so a revenue funded company is a, a, a beautiful thing. Yeah. At it. You, you have a vested interest. You, you have literal skin in the game because <laughs> yes. if you have a down year, it changes the next two years, right? Because it could change your ability to generate new products, to extend mm -hmm. further. Uh, sometimes as you look to expand into other retailers, especially, that's the reason why 50% of the Shark Tank sharks are focused on specific big box retail and the other 50% want nothing to do with it. Right. It's a horrifying experience because it's a big, long process. They of course want a bigger take you. And I, I use the shark tank split because that's, if you go into a lot of companies and founders and this is idea that you can be either really good at this thing and you know how to navigate that market or you have no idea and you're going to get eaten when you try to get into that big box retail and so it's it's a really interesting thing as we like retail is such a finicky and, and odd 
thing. But most importantly, you talked about the percentage of ownership. Shark Tank as an example. Everybody looks like, oh, that's great. They come up with an idea like, oh, look, I've got this fancy new phone thing. I can put my credit card in the back. Like, and I've sold 10,000 units and, and we did a Kickstarter and we were 9,000% funded and I, I got them signed by Charles Barkley. Whatever, whatever crazy thing it is that gets you that first bump. Well, of course they say, great, congratulations. Love the idea. See, you've got distribution. Uh, you've got potential. You've got a big smile. All right, uh, I'll give you what you want for 51%. Like, whoa, <laughs> hold hold on, kid. And you see yeah. people, so people are sitting at home watching this going like, you idiot, they just offered you $2 million. Like, cause to the person watching at home, $2 million would be pretty spectacular. <laughs> but losing your whole company, not worth a penny in the world, right? Not, or no dollar amount. It's true. For me, the way I saw it was, okay, it may take me a few more years to get to where I want to be, but I am going to get there and we're going to grow slowly and steadily in a way that I'm comfortable with because I also have four small children and I was not going to not be there for them. So by me staying at the helm, I can decide my schedule and no one's going to tell me I can or cannot go to, you know, this recital or whatever it's, it really depends. I mean, if you start, if you want to start a co-working space or a restaurant or something where you need a big team off the bat, or you need real estate, you do need angel investors. You do need VC funding. I mean, when you have a product-based company, you don't necessarily have to, I mean, you can do, I, I think I've utilized every single <laughs> funding that's out there, but VC. I mean, we self-funded quite a bit, um, friends and family, um, uh, online loans. Now we work with a factor. We're just recently doing some PO funding. Uh, you know, there's so much. And now there's wonderful, you know, there's some um, amazing crowdfunding campaigns like I Fund Women. I mean, they're so spectacular. They offer not only the this most spectacular crowdfunding platform, but they also offer coaching, you know, how do you, which is so needed. Um, Alex, Alex has drained his, my husband. He's drained his 401k twice for me back in the day. I was like, I need money to bring in blenders. And he, you know, you know, we've taken out home equity lines of credit. We have literally done everything that we can to grow this company and to scale this company without giving it away. But not everyone can do that. And I definitely sit here realizing, you know what, not everyone has a husband who can throw them a few hundred grand to start their company. I mean, we, after three years, we didn't put any more um, personal money in because it, I mean, we had no savings. <laughs> you yeah. know, we, had, we had no, we had no savings. Not only did we have a drained 401k, but we also had a really huge home equity line of credit that needed to be paid back. So when we sold our home in New York and moved up to Massachusetts, we had no money. I mean, nothing. We basically moved up. We, we rented a place for two years and we had to financially rebuild. Now it was worth it because the company then really was able to scale. And then we just were able to scale off of our revenue. You know, I had enough positive bank statements to get an online loan. And now we, now we're eight years in business. Now we work with a factor and some other things, but you know, it's all depends on the sacrifice you want to make. You're going to make a sacrifice. You're either going to put sacrifice your own finances or you're going to sacrifice ownership. I mean, but you have to get that funding, but you just have to do it in a way that's comfortable for you. 
brings up a good point. When you hear the phrase, or when I hear the phrase, work-life balance, I hear impossibility. What I treat it as is work-life trade-off. And because balance isn't necessarily you give one, you get one. You, there are some, some subprime credit involved in work-life trade-off, right? Because yeah. you, you had to lay a big bet and it's working positively, thankfully, right? And, and oh, you've worked, you worked to make it, make it work, but there is no, and even when people hear the numbers we mention, sometimes they'll be like, oh boy, it would have been nice. Like, do you understand? I, you gave away everything and you put it into a thing that has no liquidity. Mm-hmm. And then it is entirely possible for what we're experiencing right now in the world with a complete pandemic, that that could happen at any given time. So there is an incredible faith exercise in putting your future into today in liquid form, <laughs> liquid equity, and, and yeah. betting on the other side of it. And that's the why I say it's a work-life trade-off, because then you make a choice on what you are going to do to create that outcome. Yeah, we didn't take a vacation for years. Um, we didn't do anything but live. Like the kids used to a- used to ask, "When can we go somewhere? When can we go so- somewhere?" And um, we really couldn't do much of anything for many years because we had this giant home equity line. And half of the home equity line we used for to grow inventory and stuff, and the other half of the home equity line, you know, we took a a calculated risk and we did and. Um, a really well-produced, beautiful infomercial, but it wound up tanking because it was too niche. It was too niche. And so um, we lost $250,000. And, you know, a lot of calculated risks work out um, and a lot don't. And this was a big hit, Uh, but we kept going. You know, that one thing didn't work out, but 10 other things are working out, but it was our own money. (laughs) So it's hard. I think that's a, a, there's a healthy uh, value in, in the sharing of the tough parts of the story. It's kind of funny. We always love the, the sort of heroic things. And even when you look at like a drama, I think it's Dick Wolf who did all the like the law and orders. He says, uh, great drama is when you take all the boring stuff out of life and cram it into an hour. Or like, you know, take every, take out all the boring stuff and then make an hour out of the rest. Of course, like, just like every police drama, there's three months of people making horrifying phone calls, sitting in coffee shops, doing nothing. Like, so all of the winning heroic things that people read when they buy a book about a business that launched, they don't see the, the 3000 pages that talk about, cause no one wants to share that. Right. That's, I think it's healthy to do that, especially for other founders. I think right? it's critical. I think it's imperative. Um, it is so unfair uh, to only share your successes. It's so not right. It's not good for humanity. <laughs> you, you have to, because how do you learn? You learn from your mistakes. It's the only way we learn. Um, as long as you learn and you fail fast and you move on and you don't hang, to, hang on to the Titanic and go down with it. You know, you, you see, okay, something is not working. Let me pivot and change. But mistakes are good. And I am an open book as far as the money I've lost and the money like I've spent on things and mistakes I made because yes, 
in life and in business, there are a lot of things we do have to learn the hard way. But I also believe there's a lot we don't need to learn the hard way. And there's a lot that we can learn if someone is honest about their experiences. Like, you know, and I love to coach and mentor other female entrepreneurs because I lay it out. I'm like, don't you dare spend 20 grand on your suite of retail packaging before you show it to people before you, you know, make up some mock boxes, like show the retailers, does it fit into their scheme? Like, because that was a huge mistake that I made back in the day. And, you know, if you don't share those failures, you're not helping anyone. Yeah. We don't just learn from the winning. We learn from the losing and we learn from the negatives. In fact, we, the most profound lessons come from not repeating the negative because repeating a positive implies that it's not only the, the thing you brought to it as far as effort, but it's the timing, which is not necessarily replicable. And very true. This is the, the challenge of all these business books. Uh, it's, it's very much and self-help books, everything, right? It's like, if the self, if we didn't all need self-help, the damn section of the bookstore wouldn't be three miles wide. Like it's <laughs> very true. And why do they all say the same thing? Because it's a person telling the story on the other side and giving you their kind of impactful lessons, but it also implied the timing and they took out a lot of the stuff that they didn't want to share. And I think that's because no one wants to read like, oh yeah, here's the, here's the time that I, I, I did a horrifying thing to myself or to my family because I was depressed and whatever. You, they, they crunch that down to a paragraph and then they share how they got through it. And what I find that sometimes the most profound stories are why when, when people go to like anonymous 12-step programs and, and such, they're not there to say like, hey, it's going to be okay, kid. You know, they're there to say, I, I did something really bad yesterday and I'm going to tell you all about it. That's what, when they come out of that room, they aren't patting each other on the back and saying like, rah, rah, like, ooch, ooch, like a morning sales meeting, getting fired up to go do something. Like, no, they are coming out of there going, I don't want to repeat that. I don't want to experience that. And so I think when you share those things, especially when you do mentoring and coaching, that's why it's, I, I always tell people it's the, the Tom Skerritt line from Top Gun. I'm not here to blow sunshine up your ass, kid. Like what, <laughs> that's, that's what it is. I tell people, I'm like, you know, hey, I want to lose weight and I, I don't want it to suck. I'm like, well, I have bad news. <laughs> you're going to be hungry. It's going to suck. Yeah. But if you're willing to do that with me, I'll get you through it. So uh, let's talk about mentoring and coaching because I think it's incredible. And it's one of the most beautiful things we can do to each other and society and is to, to help each other through with, with our own lessons. Uh, what, what's, what is it that you do? Uh, and, and what do you think we as a society can do better as well on doing that? When I started, you know, 10 years ago, um, there really wasn't this very open book mentality and the, the coaching mentoring was not anywhere near what it is now. Um, you know, I really, I didn't get a coach for myself for six years. I mean, Alex was really my mentor and I'm so, and he still is, you know, one of my biggest, um, most important sounding boards. And I've learned so much from him. Um, but I needed a, a mentor 
I, w I wanted a female mentor who ran a product-based company who was years ahead of me. And um, it, it, it took a while to, um, to find that, but I joined a couple of communities. I joined the Hey Mama community and I joined the wing and I've met some really spectacular women and who've not only been able to mentor and help me, but who I've been able to mentor and help as well. And actually I've worked with some fantastic men. Um, I worked with Craig Ballantyne quite a bit uh, two years ago and um, and then Alex and I actually did some small group coaching with him as well together and uh, learned a lot about about the business of being a CEO, you know, because I knew that I needed to step up my game as well as the, as the company was scaling. Um, and so for me now, um, when I mentor and coach other women, I just, you know, we talk about what are your goals? You know, what are your goals now? What can you do now? And, you know, there's a lot of fear. Everyone has all this fear. And so my main thing when I coach and mentor other female entrepreneurs is talking about the fear factor because no matter who we are, whether we're super experienced in business or just starting out, everyone has fear. Fear of looking dumb, fear of not having enough money, fear of not having enough experience, fear of the competition, fear of anything. And I think fear is holding so many people back, both personally and professionally. Um, and so I say to to these women, do it scared. I Just do it, just go, do it, start. Don't wait for the perfect moment because it doesn't exist. Don't wait for the perfect amount of funding because it doesn't exist. You know, if you believe in yourself and you believe in your idea and your team and your product or your service, just start. It's so important just to get started, but fear just gets in, gets in the way so often. So I feel like when I share my stories of where I made mistakes, it's comforting to know that other people are making mistakes too. And when I hear from other people who I admire greatly that they've made similar mistakes and or have similar fears as I do, I'm like, okay, it makes me wanna keep going. So I am an open book because um, I think it's so important. It's uh the, my favorite proverb is a you know Chinese proverb or whoever knows what the origin is. And in this point, it's you can't attribute anything to it. It's actual honest beginnings, but it's uh, the best time to plant a tree is twenty years ago, and the second best time is now. Hundred percent. And it's it's very much. Uh, I've talked to a friend of mine, and and he's uh, he's very glad he was on the podcast. Right? Rory. Uh, uh, so he he's a magician. And among many things, that's sort of his, his trade right now is he's a magician and he does crowd building for, for companies at events, uh, but he also does training for like sales techniques and, and interpersonal uh, communications and stuff. Really cool. He uh, had a background in acting, uh, you know, the whole Adler met, like has gone through, done all this incredible you know, stuff. And we talk through more and more things. And as we talk about these different things, we kind of like, oh yeah, I've done that. I tried this. I researched this. You go through these things. And he says like, you know, I'm one of the people that we, we always like have these friends that we all bounce to these ideas. And he says the difference between not like just thinking about it and going for it is going for it. Like that's it. There's, there's no secret sauce. You just, he says, but the difference to success is just going for it. Like it's the difference between thinking that idea and being held back by the lack of execution. He's like, there's no 
there's no barrier other than your willingness to just push forward. Absolutely. And it's tough, right? It's, and, that, and I guess I take for granted. I, I'm like, I always tell I'm like the most, I'm not a type, I'm like a type A minus person. I like to do <laughs> things, but I'm also not, I'm not the, uh, I'm just, I'm not that aggressive. I like to wind down every once in a while. <laughs> but I realize that I kind of do more things than other people. And you, it's funny that when you go and you talk to these new founders and they just got an idea, what you can do is you can light up that excitement in them because it's in Absolutely. them. Absolutely. It's in everyone. And I actually have someone now who I'm helping with. She's gotten herself. uh, She has a beautiful product line, but she made made the the mistake that a a lot of people do. And she put too much of her own money in. Um, Went too too much too fast. And now they're in a very difficult situation. So I'm, I'm helping her kind of navigate through that and connecting her with some people I know um, in, in various, you know, financial ways that can help her. Um, But that's important too, like when to stop putting in your own money, you know? So we talk about lighting them up and getting them excited, uh, you know, also opening up the Rolodex and, and sharing contacts, but also being like, you're putting too much of your own money in here. Try this, talk to this person. Like it's too much. Um, you have to, you have all this debt. You have to sell this asset. Like I know you don't want to, but if you don't do that, this, this, and this are going to happen. Um, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot to be learned. There's so many elements to it. The, I, I, I love, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the generation that I know what a Rolodex is. I love that, right? I'm waiting right. for one day, I'm going to come <laughs> up with like a virtual Rolodex. It'd be, I guess we'll talk about busting open our LinkedIn uh, connections or whatever in the future. I know. I love when I heard that word. I'm like, ah, classic. I love it. I know. I guess um, no one who's not in their 40s knows about the Rolodex, but, or you're like my little Philo facts with my Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is the interesting thing now, like the barrier to entry is so much lower, but also the barrier to understanding when is too holding on too long dangerous is also equally low. People are willing to like lay a lot of bets and there's not a lot of coaching on when, when you've got to let a burning asset just burn and just like separate it from your, from yourself what's the if you don't mind even sort of pulling you talked about your your infomercial uh, probably obviously a significant one right mm-hmm. what are some what what's kind of the biggest thing that you held on to a little too long and what was the effect of it so, you know what so here's the thing it's not that i held on to something too long it's that i was missing some really critical information that i didn't find out about until it was too late ah, which okay. which was truly how expensive airtime is and truly how much you need to spend to start seeing the result because i think the metric is you need to see an infomercial seven to ten times before you that's why you see the my pillow guy like always always (laughs) always always you know but i mean by the time that customer converts and makes that first purchase They've seen that infomercial 20 times and it cost him a ton of money to get that airtime. So, you know, 
I knew how much the production was going to cost. I knew how much the website was going to cost. I knew how much the warehouse, I knew how much the product I knew, but I didn't. And I, this was something, you know, a very hard lesson learned. I did not have the full understanding of how expensive airtime was and how much airtime and how much money we would need to spend before we started seeing. That was a big mistake. Uh, so here we had spent all this money. It really wasn't doing very well. Do I hang on to the Titanic and keep spending more money and buying more airtime and more airtime just hoping? Or do I say, oh, geez, all right. And we bought a little more airtime and we tried to be a little more strategic. But after two months, I just, I pulled the plug on the whole thing and I said, you know what? We're just going to can this whole thing. We've already spent $250,000. I'm not, don't throw good money after bad. And that's when I said, you know what? This is a very expensive lesson. And, so there's somewhere out there, there was a mom who was up at three o'clock in the morning who saw that ad and they, they turned the corner. But, it, but re, we kind of also take for granted that like YouTube is free and people think like, oh, I could, I've even got low cost medium in which to share this. Well, that's, there's a reason why airtime on networks costs a disturbing amount of money is because they will get outcomes, but it's built on like a very programmatic long-term, like you're in for the long game on that stuff. And it's- And I would never, if I was presented with that opportunity now, I would never have done it because this was five years ago. Yeah. You know? I mean, now I'd be, I would have been much more inclined to put <laughs> even just a fraction of that money into social media marketing yeah. um, to, to, to get, an even bigger benefit. I mean, but back in the day, people were spending $15,000 for an ad and, you know, pregnancy magazine and, you know, having to spend all this money to be on, to be on network TV, but you don't need to do that anymore. You really yes, don't. And I always laugh still today when I hear somebody do an ad and it's like, Hey, don't forget to go to mypill.com forward slash news. And it's like this awful overdubbed thing. You're like, cause you know, they went to like 40 different networks. And I, when I hear those things, I just think like, Holy heck, like Sirius XM, like all these different things, like the, the, the time and the cost of that time, it's, it's frightening, you know, and it's just incredible. And again, it's, but the alternative of the free media opportunities is also there's reason why the conversion rates are low. It's, you know, people don't go viral. Like there is no, there is no easy answer to all of this. It's either the trade-off of production and time and money or the trade-off of persistence and, and hope, you know, to get it marketed out there. Well, you know, something that I've really found over the eight years, and we've tried a lot of different things is that, you can't beat grassroots boots on the ground marketing because um, I went to uh, a couple of years ago, one of um, like the country's largest VCs invited us to this incredible, incredible um, weekend. And I, I, I sat in on a millennial mom panel and that's my consumer millennial moms and about their buying habits and you know nobody can they don't care if a celebrity is using something they don't care if it's on tv they don't care if it's in the magazines they care about their friends and their family's opinion and they care about how many stars it has on amazon period yeah. like period so yeah. that changed 
how we marketed. I, cause we, we started obviously grassroots. Then I was like, okay, well, we're taking the next step of the company. Maybe we need to be doing more of this fancy TV influencer paid marketing. And it tanked. The ROI was so not there. And so once I saw this panel, I said, you know what? screw this, I'm going back to where we started. I'm going back to grassroots. And what I did was I developed a spectacular brand ambassador program for Sage Spoonfuls. We've had anywhere from 50 brand ambassadors to 90 brand ambassadors and they're real moms. And they have, they're, they have followings every, everywhere from maybe 1,000 followers to you know 50,000 followers, but all of their followers are engaged. They're writing reviews, they're buying products, they're doing giveaways, they're, it's a lifestyle. You know, our brand is a lifestyle. Um, it's not just a product, you know, preparing food for your child and how do you fit that into your lifestyle? So for us, I have found grassroots marketing um, to be so beneficial. Reviews, 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 reviews. It is, it is everything. And you're not going to get that spending $15,000 uh, for a magazine ad or hundreds of thousands of dollars in airtime. Now that's for us. That's for a small company like us. I've got to imagine it works because people are doing it constantly. But um, if you don't have that huge of a budget, I highly recommend um, doing a brand ambassador program, um, you know, with micro influencers who really have an engaged loyal community who are going to buy what you're recommending. It's the, it's the foundation of any good sort of community is just the idea that we share with each other and then they naturally develop sort of leaders and strong voices in that. And then they develop a credibility in, in what they do. And then you take that and, and then you share amongst. And I think it's, there's a big difference between that kind of an influencer, which I f firmly believe in, you know, technology influencers, same kind of thing. But, you know, Khloe Kardashian taking a sip from an FRS drink on Instagram, like not worth my 25,000 or 125,000, whatever goofy, you know, numbers attached to it. Good honor and good on anybody. That's sort of at that sort of thing. But that's, that's not what scales a business. Because I also think your, your customer, your customer knows that she's getting paid. Right. So, so when you get to an influencer of that magnitude, I don't know how the ROI is there because the consumer knows they're being paid. But if it's a, this really cool, you know, mom that you follow on Instagram and she's got like three or four or 5,000 followers and like, you see that she's just using Sage Spoonfuls every day, but not like, you know, like, yeah, not exactly. like you know, the perfectly pose, crafted posing with it. Yeah, I mean, we just, I mean, sales are through the roof for us. And I just, for me, grassroots marketing is just, um, and social media marketing has been incredibly beneficial. And it's not that expensive. It is what you make of it. Did you find that the, the FTC regulations that came in in 2019 uh, affected that program? And how did you adjust to there? And so for folks that are listening, it's uh, the FTC. Uh, and I, for a Canadian, I know a stupid amount about American regulations, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I, my, my wife is, is a US citizen and I, and I spend 50 or more percent of the time in the US anyways. But uh, the FTC requires that anything that has a, an endorsement, even if it's like, if you're given a free ticket to go to an event, so I have to like, when I tweet about it, I have to say like hashtag FTC, hashtag, you know, uh, there's like different hashtags for social media that you have to include to understand that it's an advertisement. I think it's just like hashtag ad or, or there's a couple of different ones that you can do that safely say that I was in some way 
remunerated, you know, whether it's through product or, or something for this, did, did you find that that changed anything at all in, in that brand ambassador view of the world? Um, all it did was change our process. I mean, cause for reviews, you know, you really, I took a really, I participated in a really cool webinar, you know, last year about this and about the FTC, because it also has been tweaked a little bit. And, you know, then Amazon has their own rules. Um, right. Because I just wanted to understand the metrics. You know, I wanted to understand, like, if someone says at the end of their review, you know, I got this product for for free, or I got this product as part of the Sage Spoonful's team, like, how does that affect the consumer reading it? Are they like, oh, well, this person obviously is going to say something nice, but it actually, you know, about it because they got it for free, but actually the metric is not negative about just having that disclaimer. Um, you know, so we just follow the guidelines, you know, like um, on Instagram, when our brand ambassadors post, they post tag, uh, they post, um, they tag uh, uh, like team sage mama. So people know that it's a brand ambassador or and hashtag brand ambassador. And then when they write reviews, they just follow the FTC guidelines. At the end of it, they say, you know, we receive this product as a part of the Sage Spoonful's product testing team, which is what they are, our yeah. product, product review team. And um, uh, it's what you're supposed to do. And I think it's fair because I don't think it's fair to fill Amazon um, with fake reviews. And I appreciate the FTC coming in and doing that because people can so easily be misled and that's not cool. Yeah. And I think it's like you said, if you, if, if the person has a voice that's trusted, it is like there, if someone's just shilling, they won't be trusted anyways. Mm -hmm. they, this is, it's a fairly natural process. Uh, like the, the machine is very self-regulating in a way, yeah. like, you know, like you said, I, when somebody who's an Instagram, you know, 14 million follower influencer, we know that they don't actually like FRS or whatever, you know, like, and I say this is I've tasted that awful stuff as a cyclist. So I, I am a very negative to FRS, uh, even though Lance Armstrong <laughs> loves it, but Hey, uh, you know, it's funny. Like you, you see these things like it will not influence me, which is even funnier. Like when we think of like, now with like politics and all this crazy stuff, people are like, oh, you know, like social media can influence people's behaviors. Like it, it actually doesn't, except the edges, but very much Correct. sort of the, the, the middle ground, the greater percentage of people, they will do what they do regardless of what they see in an advertisement. There's obviously that little, that little like, ooh, ting, you know, that little dopamine response that kicks in when you're like, ooh, I could really use one of those right now. Like that, that's, that's gonna happen. But for the most part, when it's people are talking about a product, especially when it's family, food, mm -hmm. lifestyle, there's an honesty in the way that we, even as an endorsed influencer, share the story. You know, and also I, I had to laugh too. Your your FAQs are the best because they're just like normal. Like it's the I when you read frequently asked questions on websites, it's always like, what's the best way to use this product? Whatever you're like, no, why didn't you respond to my email? <laughs> my my favorite thing ever. Like, sorry, super busy. Let's double check, make sure it's not in your spam. Like it's a human wrote this. An actual person is like reading 
if I called in and said, hey, Sage Spoonfuls, I've got a, something weird happened. You are literally like a human wrote this answer. <laughs> that, that, that's right, because we do, we do often, I know it's such a funny FAQ, why didn't you respond to my email? <laughs> because we get that, because so many people have Gmail accounts and Gmail will often, I don't know why, but often puts um, rsagebears.com in a spammer junk. So like we get that and then I'll write to them personally. I'm like, can you do me a favor and check your spam? And they do. I mean, it, I just write and I want my, my customer service to just write to people how you would talk to them, you know, um, because we, we've had different customer service reps come in and, you know, maybe they're also working with a different brand and every brand has, has their own way that they want to talk to customers. But for me, and sometimes I'll see, you know, when they're first starting out with us, I say, will you just BCC me on a couple of your customer emails? Cause I just want to, I don't want to like scare them, but I want them to like, show me what their natural groove is, you know, how they talk to the customer. But sometimes it's very like very corporate. And I said, you know, at Sage Spoonfuls are really just like parents talking to parents. And I'll be like, here's, here's how I would suggest, like if it was me answering this, like, Hey, sorry you had that problem. I that totally sucks when FedEx crushes your package, like blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's there's a there's a beautiful honesty and, and I think everybody needs more of that. And and when they do this stuff, like don't fall victim to the perfectly crafted marketing speak. Look, I, I work in a marketing team. I'm a technical person, but I work in a marketing team because I know what matters to me as a consumer. And we I've even had folks, you know, account reps and folks in, in my own organization and others. And they'll hand me like, here's the, like a, a cold intro email, you know, that I'm going to send somebody, you know, can you send it on, on our behalf? And I would say like, it looks like this, it looks like you built an AI to write what another AI would write to a robot as a way <laughs> to introduce itself. I'm like, I, I love that you've like repeated the website, but why don't you just say, Hey, you know, person, <laughs> how are, I hope that things are well, you know, don't start with the problems facing businesses today are paramount to the success. And like, how about we just sound like a human talking to a human Yes. and be conversational about it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we do. And you know what, something I've, I've started to do is, and something I think that's really important for, for a lot of CEOs of small businesses is, you know, you're just because you're the CEO doesn't mean that you shouldn't respond to customers directly. Um, in the beginning, I did it all the time because I didn't have customer service reps. Um, and then in the middle, I stopped because we have customer service reps. But what happens on the weekends? You know, people, yeah. and I'm one of them, I mean, freak out if I don't like people just want to be heard and people just want to have a response. So you really do need to be a 24 hour customer service. So a couple, two years ago, I started, I told my team, I said, look, I'm going to take over for you guys on the weekend. So if I'm like, at the <laughs> because I want people, and especially if it's a product for their kids, like if they send something Friday at 7 PM, when, you know, the warehouse is closed and the customer service reps are gone, you think that Friday night to Monday morning, that's a lifetime. So that's like, right. That is a lifetime. So if I'm at the barn or I, I'm on my weekend, you know, I've got, I'm everything then funnels through me and I just respond to them directly. And it's such a nice way to um, keep your hand on the pulse of your consumer. Just 
and I ask them questions and stuff and it's um, and to get their feedback. And I think that's really important for, for, for CEOs, especially of small businesses to, to continue to dialogue directly with your customer. One of the favorite references, it was, I think it was, I believe it was Jeff Bezos. And I believe it was one of the, like uh, the founder of, or at least the president of the time of, of Walmart. Uh, and he was like all irked that, you know, his, his Kindle got, you know, got smashed in delivery and he sent him a personal email and said, please consider me your personal help desk to make sure that this gets resolved. And it was so funny. And he's like, you totally like this, this is, so Walmart's an example, right? Even though they're an incredibly huge brand, they're a huge brand because as a brand, they're built on community people. This is, they're a huge version of a community representation. And that's what made the company successful is you walk in, they have greeters and they have like all of this stuff that makes Walmart what it is. Look, obviously I'm not going to talk about some of the tactics that happen in large business versus small business, but that was it. Right. And so no, you know, so here it was, you know, no matter how small or large any company is just the CEO taking a moment to say, Hey, I hear you. And I'm really sorry. And consider this my promise to you that we're going to get this sorted out. It's a beautiful little hint of empathy that can change the way that you, cause you said if, if I'm somebody that has a product break on a Friday night and I don't hear things till Monday morning, that's two days of Amazon shopping that I just did buying another product. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think just as important to, to respond to people who have an issue. Uh, it's also important to respond to the people who love you. You know what right. I'm saying? Who, when you, when you read your Amazon reviews to really appreciate that that person took the time to give you a five-star review to just reach out and say, Hey, that is so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your pictures and for sharing like that's so great um i think it's important to i mean obviously you can't respond to every single customer personally but to really jump in there when you can and like i said for me it's i'm i'm the weekend customer service i i just i don't want people to sit and wonder you know what happened or you know because now obviously like there's delays and shipment with corona and everything being delayed and you know sometimes ups and sometimes look the i don't expect the customer to understand the chain of fulfillment you know what I'm yeah, saying? Right. i mean it's it's like that, that that's really not fair you know almost the majority of the issues that we see are not even remotely our fault but like alex likes to say it's not your fault but it's your problem <laughs> You know, you have to, fix yeah. you know, just because UPS ran over the glass, the, the box of glass jars and broke them, you know, doesn't mean our, we did something wrong, but we have to fix it. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's incredible lessons and, and I, uh, we could, I could go all day on this one, Liza, and this has been very good. And thank you so much for sharing. One thing I wanted to know is what, what can we do more for good female founded businesses. And, and I think we talked before this, uh, even the label that I have to apply to it is such a, such a tough one. And I, I know this personally, because of course I'm, uh, you know, I effectively am part of the problem, <laughs> you know, as I, uh, as a male, you know, in an industry that's in technology dominated by male voices and, and male presence, we always face the challenge of, you know, finding, you know, encouraging women to join technology and STEM and STEAM and such. 
So on the founding side, there's even much sort of thinner and venture capital also in credit. Like, so those percentages drop significantly. What, what can we do better, do you think, to encourage female founders to get what they need? Because it's out there to be gotten. I, yeah, I think, that, I think that right now, there is no better time to be a female entrepreneur than right now. I mean, the female-owned businesses and the whole mentality and community around female-owned businesses is exploding. And the support for female-owned businesses, I have never seen it so strong. Um, and what can we do to help? Just continue to support you know, sub support women owned businesses, you know, if you're, you know, if your wife or your, you know, your partner uh, has been at home with the kids for 10 years and now has an idea and she wants to get back in the workforce in, on, in an entrepreneurial way, support her, you know, support her, like, and, you know, help her achieve her dreams. Um, and, you know, young girls and young women coming out of college or maybe don't want to go to college and, and are starting, want to start their own company, support them. Um, don't tell them, oh no, they have to go to college or they won't be successful. Like, let them, let them live their dreams. You know, just support is the most important thing, I, I think. And if you, if you could think of any kind of top resources, I always love to say, like, what are the, what are the sort of, if you could pick a couple of books that you've, you know, read that you found have been helpful, even what I love is what's a book that you've reread recently that you may have read in the past and, and what made you go back to that uh, as, a, as a resource again? So there's two resources I want to talk about. One is a book and one is, is not a book. Okay, the book is not a book about business. It's a book about life. And that's Sheryl Sandberg's book, um, Plan B, which is about, you know, overcoming trauma and very difficult times. And, and it, of course, is the story of the very tragic story of, of the loss of her husband. But it's so beautifully written and interwoven are statistics on how people recover um, from trauma and, and heartbreak and difficult times, whether personally or professionally. There's statistics. There's also other people's stories. It's just this incredibly powerful book of resilience. And I, I mean, I, I just, I love that book. And I think it's really important. It just is such a testament to the resiliency of the human spirit. And then specifically for female founders, um, there's a couple of resources. If you have a company, you know, that you want to start, or if you already have an existing company and you need more funding, I cannot recommend iFundWomen enough. iFundWomen.com. Uh, they also have iFundWomen of Color as well. Uh, just a phenomenal crowdfunding platform that also offers just spectacular high-level coaching. Um, I'm actually going to be doing a webinar on manufacturing for them. Um, and, and then if you can join, join female communities like Hey Mama, if you're working a working mom, uh, Hey Mama is incredible. Just some of the most spectacular women. Um, there's thousands of members around the country. There's the Female Founder Collective, femalefoundercollective.com. Uh, and then there's also these wonderful female co-working spaces like The Wing. I mean, enormous opportunity to network. Uh, those are some resources um, that I have found very helpful Excellent. for myself. Well and that and and I think that's the least we can do, like you said is is support in some way every day and 
And that is when you look for a brand that you buy, look a little deeper into what the story is behind the brand uh, and, and look for something that you'd be proud to buy from. And I think we, a little longer spent in the transaction can change the way you feel about what you just bought. And absolutely. Absolutely. And female, I mean, women, women are incredible and women are, women are so strong and creative and powerful and we're moms and we're, you know, spouses and partners and friends. And we, we are the caretakers of society and we have a lot of phenomenal ideas and the products and the brands and the services that I see my friends creating are outstanding. And I'm so happy to see women really coming into their own more now than ever. It's a fantastic time to be a female entrepreneur. And, and I, I will do my best to make sure we, we spread this message. And thank you for taking the time. This has been great. Uh, again, for folks that want to see more, go to sagespoonfuls.com. You can follow, you've got Instagram. I'll, we'll put all the links in the show notes as well. We'll link to all of the stuff like I Fund Women, uh, I Fund Women of Color, uh, all of this stuff. These are phenomenal resources. And, you know, more than anything, just thank you for exploring a lot today. You know, I know the story of, of your, your son. Even more, like I tell you, people don't realize you had your second of four children has this incredible challenge in just what you discovered, you know, what, what his life would be like. And then you went back to the well two more times. That is heroic enough. <laughs> Most people, you know, when you hear like, when, if they have a difficult situation, it's tough to think you can get through it. But we do. And I think all of us need to kind of take this lesson. And as we listen to this, these stories and we look at how we will behave in four months, five months, six months, a year from now, we've got to look back on this and said, hey, we did this. Even as simple as I didn't leave the house except for the basics for a month and a half, whatever it's going to be, we can do this. And, and as a parent, it's sort of a neat thing. I always say parenting is about making your kids think that everything's going to be okay when you don't know that it will. There's a certain really difficult aspect that we have to internalize some stuff for our kids, but we would never not do it. And it's the same for our businesses, for our partners, for our spouses, for our family, and for our peers in the, in the business is that it's going to be okay. Not going to be easy, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> and we'll get to the other side of this. And uh, so again, oh, and also the brand ambassadors, we'll make sure we put a link to that for folks that are, uh, that are looking to get involved and, and sort of spread the, spread the joy. Um, so again, I'm a, I'm a fan of the brand, not a big following on Instagram. So I don't think I'm going to make the cut for the brand ambassadors, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll do my best. Hey, podcasting is my only hope, but uh, hopefully we'll, this will get some, some good ears and some good eyes on what we're talking about. Well, thank you so much for having me, Eric. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you about so many different, really important topics. And thank you for having me on the show. If nothing, it'll be the record for the weirdest podcast you've ever had to be on. <laughs> no, no way, no way. There's, there's nothing weird. Everything is good. It is good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much.